0: Now, now you're live.
1: Well, I think that's, I think James make an interesting point that, you know, are, are leaders reflective or are they the ones that have all the answers or not? And it comes down to that. Boehner was a guy who who was very self-reflective, I thought, as a speaker, especially after 2011. His first two years were miserable. And he sits down with a bunch of conservatives, one's Jeb Henserling, at that point, Paul Ryan, <laughs> um, uh, uh. I uh, Jim Jordan was there. Said, "What do I need to do to make this work?" And he said, "You have to let sequester go into place, and you have to do these the following things." And all of a sudden, in March, what's happening? Sequester's going into effect. We don't have a deal. He's starting to uh, he he's navigating his conference in a different way. I thought that was it was really it was it was a, a really good is
2: attempt. That the to, Williamsburg Accord stuff, or is that separate from the Williams? Well,
3: Accord? this is what wow, this is what the Williamsburg Accord. That's a blast from the past. <laughs> Man, this is this, this is what Olivia in the paper today too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This is what Alberta called the Jedi Council, the conservative Jedi Council. And they sat down. He tried to adjust his leadership style to sort of fit the new mold because the, the way he was working things was not uh, ultimately panning out. Um, uh, see, I don't, Banners is un, Banners I don't, unusual too, though.
0: I don't get on people who say they want to spend more time with their family because I kind of think they're being honest there. Like I don't, well, I'm sure. I, I, I think the the real thing for me that proves that is like is you're the speaker and you – don't want to be speaker anymore or you can't be speaker anymore because you're going to get yanked out of there and then you retire. Well, Ryan, if he wanted, could keep re- representing Wisconsin 1 and just going to be a backbencher or whatever. He probably could have his committee chair back. Like, But he's not going to do that. And why not? It's like once upon a time, that was good enough to sacrifice his family life, but now he's advanced. And, it's not. and that's what always strikes me as strange. Mm-hmm. And it indicates to me that they're sacrificing a lot in their lives to do this job. And that stepping backwards and just being a backbencher where that may have once been good enough with a future ahead of you is no longer good enough because there's cost to doing this. Yeah. yeah. And like being a backbencher is like the only reason you're sacrificing your family or whatever is so that you have this future advancement. Yeah, but and when you don't have that anymore, then it's really just a pure grind. And so when he says, I want to be with my family, I, I kind of believe him. I know that's not why it's happening at this moment, but I totally get that like, you know, you're here to try and do something influential. And if you can't, you just be home with your kids. sounds a lot better.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and James. I mean, you were saying before too that, that um, it has to do with the leaders always. People, everybody believes they have the answers. Right.
3: I mean, when you're when you're a leader and you're looking out and everybody's looking back at you, thinking you're going to solve all their problems, and all of a sudden you figure out that you don't know how to do that. That's a very terrifying thing. And and you add to that the time you spend away from your family, especially if you have young kids. You add to that the grind, the attacks, everything over and over again. You add to that a committed, uh, poly, you know, a a, you're determined to achieve your policy agenda. You add all those things together, and you can't follow through on your policy agenda. What do you do? Of course, your your calculation is I want to retire now, right? And so the question is, what does he do next? I mean, he may go home and stay at home. I, he yeah. can speculate maybe he's the new president of AI. I don't know, but like there's other things that he could do to kind of reset that work life balance that everybody, regardless of what you do for a living, struggles with. Right. But you know, and I think it, it's not surprising that he's leaving.
2: Right. And I think there's another reason he's doing it too is to keep himself looking good in case he wants to run for higher office.
3: See,
0: Alberta's piece in the political mag this week, or just right after retired, seemed to reject that thesis. Because that was my thesis, too, that he still has ambitions. Alberta seemed to indicate that he really doesn't, and that the grind on his family, that vice VP run, turned him completely off to that and that he was pushed into that. And now he wants to have a public policy center named after him somewhere in Wisconsin and he's going to write books and be kind of an outside player. I don't know what I believe. So let's look at this.
2: He was pushed into being the VP. Mm -hmm. He was pushed into being the speaker. Not that hard to see him six years from now being pushed into being – I just, uh, I just think that
0: national ticket's a hard place to get pushed into. Is there really that right. many people who are so good that they're going to be drafted as opposed to people who are digging and clawing to get there? Yeah. I mean, hey. you know, Romney, <clears throat> Alberta brought up that point that Romney held that form in 14 or whatever to try and attract 16 candidates, and he just snubbed them even go. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know what the thing, because that's my basic sense, too, was that he had ambitions and the speakership wasn't a great fit for him and getting out quicker is better. Well, but.
1: Well, that was definitely true. Right. He was he was, a, he, was a, <laughs> he was a terrible fit for the speakership um, for a variety of reasons. But I want to go back to James or something where you, you bring up an interesting point where everybody's looking to you as a leader to solve their problems. And when you can't do it, then what do you do? Um, do you think like w- one thing that we've seen recently in Congress is a lot of leadership turnover, particularly on the Republican side? And do you think that the process has anything to do with that? The fact that leaders are in so much control of the process that they're essentially like they're a little bit more responsible for the winnings or losings of the particular outcomes. I mean, is, is leadership essentially like a more responsible position now and is being treated as such Is like, there so much turnover?
3: Absolutely. It's common sense. If you centralize power in the leadership and then things don't go well, people are going to look to those with power uh, for an explanation for why they're not going well. But this brings up a very interesting point, which is the Senate. If you were to tell me today— <laughs> uh, Wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. By a point, I mean, two beers here's in. an entire institution. This was
0: going to be the B-roll, but I think we just have to turn this into the A-roll <laughs> because this is too much good stuff. So this is Congress Two Beers In. I'm Matt Glassman, Senior Fellow of Governor Government Affairs Institute. With me is Josh Hooter and Mark Harkins, both senior fellows at Government Affairs Institute. And our special guest today is James Walner, Senate extraordinaire, man about town, art collector, current...
3: Uh, <laughs> Opera What's aficionado. at our street? Uh, a, a fellow of some sort. Yeah, maybe. Some sort of fellow. Maybe senior, maybe not. <laughs> An odd fellow, who, uh,
0: James has led the, the research division at Heritage. James is a longtime uh, senior staffer in the Senate. Uh, loves the Senate. Uh, has a lot of also hates animosity the Senate. towards the House, hates the Senate well, I times. just think it's odd
3: that you start the show the second we start talking about the Senate. <laughs> and then prior to that, when we're talking about the House, we're doing B-roll. <laughs> I mean, it's fine with me, but it just seems yeah. interesting. <laughs> you want to explore that a little bit more? <laughs>
0: anyway, James, I cut you off right when you said the Senate. So I don't know <laughs> which brings us to an interesting were, point, were, oh, by which the way, is we're the upper chamber of... <laughs> the Elliott Ness Amber Lager uh, is in, in the studio today. Uh, James, you were about to move to the Senate. I, we probably derailed everything you were thinking, but if you want to bring it back around, you can.
3: Yeah, uh, what I was just saying is it's interesting that today, right now, the House seems to be the more deliberative body. It is the more chaotic body. And you have leadership that is coming and going very rapidly. right? And in the Senate, it looks completely opposite. And you have a similar centralization of power. You have even worse outcomes. You have even worse member experiences. Yet the leadership appears to be stronger than ever. And that's just, I think, an interesting, um, you know, dynamic that people aren't fully thinking through.
1: Well, i, I disagree that the, the, the characterization that the House is the House leadership is weak. I think that's that's a misnomer to a degree. I, I don't think
3: weak. I think responsible. There's a difference, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think Mitch McConnell is going to stick around? Yeah, Well, he's term limited. <laughs> No, he's actually not. Only not. Oh, the, right. the the Republicans term limited the lower leadership position, <laughs> and when oh, there was an effort, and there has been perennially an effort to, um, or a bit, you know, every time we take <laughs> Thanks, the John. rules we'll in the conference to to term limit the leader, and as you could imagine, um, both the current leader and past leaders push back against that very aggressively. And even if you try to grandfather the existing leader and the position and term limit future leaders, the existing leader pushes back very aggressively to not do that so no he's actually not Hmm. um but i don't i don't know if he'll stick around or not um but but it you know it seems to me that if the leader is the one in control of the senate which everyone seems to agree and the senate's not doing anything and everybody's frustrated to the point that some like today senator kennedy saying maybe i want to run for governor right he hasn't even been there that long well, before you do that, maybe we should look at how the Senate's being managed and figure out how you could manage it better, and then telling the people you hire to do that job for you, do it this way, right? Do do something differently, which is at least what the House is doing, mm. unlike the illustrious and you know very dignified body that is the United States Senate. Mm. I don't. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting is that. Uh, the Freedom Caucus
1: has been like the mobilizing force in the House for all these leadership revolts, at least for the past couple few years, right? Um, they've been – they were on John Boehner the entire time. They were on Paul Ryan for – they're quieter about it because they had different circumstances, but they were on them basically the whole time. And one of the things that they've pushed for is like, well, we want more, well, some have at least. Uh, they push for they want more more representation in the process. We want more positions, gavels. We want more. But they got, better got more representation on steering and
2: policy. <laughs> yeah, we'll um, they got
1: one seat, right? And then they sort of gave up. And they're like, all right, we're good. I don't know if that's going they to kicked continue off, They
2: also kicked off the major committee chairman. I mean, they got not, there's that's not right. an insignificant that's right. part.
1: Right, but I mean, when you're one person out of 15, it's not exactly the most. Well, I guess uh, their
2: expectation was that they, some of the other ones, they, were, they got right. a bunch of the old guard off and they're bringing some of the younger blood They look in.
0: like they're angling mm-hmm. to block McCarthy now, too, though. That's right? interesting. Because it looks like Ryan is trying to consolidate McCarthy as the new speaker slash minority leader. But it really looks like Jordan is going to make a run at blocking this by running himself or trying to deny McCar- or at least signal that they may be able to deny McCarthy broach, which would be quite striking if they did that a second time to McCarthy.
2: But I- So what was really interesting is I had a chance to do a, 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 an interview with USA Today yesterday, and um, I was in response to some degree to what uh, a member of the Freedom Cox had said, David Brad. And it, in the essence was, you know, we have power now to be able to figure out who's going to be here. And we want to put pressure on them right now to have it happen. We want to make sure that ideological votes are taken now. And my point to the reporter was, that's fine if you want ideological purity, but you're probably going to give up all your power because it's going to make it easier for you to lose the majority. And so that seems to be where the Freedom Caucus is right now. They don't care about keeping the majority as long as they're ideologically pure. And that's a fascinating place to be in politics right now.
0: I See, I, I think... A vote now could sink McCarthy because it's a vote for Speaker. Yeah. If they just wait until they lose the election, then McCarthy says to win in the caucus, and he can win in the caucus easily. Where he can't, where they have the powers on the floor, where the Freedom Caucus is going to hold the balance of power. Um, I so totally I, I don't. I, I, if I'm McCarthy, I'm not sure I want to call a speakership vote right now. I think I just wait it out. And if you have to fight this out for the speakership, do it in January.
3: But right. minority leader, if he loses the speakership
0: now, he's not going to be minority leader. I
3: don't think. And but also. In looking at the Freedom Caucus and what, you know, you're reading about how they're behaving in this uh, kind of contested leadership race, isn't this how you would expect everybody in the House Republican conference to be acting? I mean, that's the curious thing to me, the, the idea that you work really hard to get here, you do all this stuff, you have these ideas, you have these things, and then you get here. And then the idea is that you work for leadership. That's nonsense. That has nothing to do with being conservative or moderate or anything in between. And you see this. It's very curious right now with Ryan and others trying to, you know, push Scalise out of the race. Let's, you know, line up the troops behind them. You know, last time I checked, you know, Paul Ryan believes in competition, right? The Republican Party and the Democrats, for that matter. It seems to me everybody believes in competition. Maybe more than others in, in certain sectors of life. But when it comes to leadership races, it's like competition is like you're in Moscow or something and like you're challenging the party leader and that's a no-no and you get in trouble and they try to like ostracize you and say you shouldn't do that. Whereas look, if Jim Jordan were to get into the speakership race, you have two very different visions about not only policy, but that's like one of the least important aspects of being speaker, not only policy, but also how you're going to run the the chamber, the Freedom Caucus, for better or worse, has given a lot of thought to how speakers run the chamber. Yeah, for sure. And they're for going sure. to be able to speak to that. Jordan has a track record running an ideologically diverse group of members. He has demonstrated an ability to play a hand of weakness in legislative negotiations and win. Right. These are, And he's humble, incidentally, as well. Yeah, These are all skills true. that one would think, I would assume, that you would want in a speaker. McCarthy, so far as I can tell, his vision is to continue things as they are. I know that's not entirely fair. I don't know that for sure. But he's not demonstrated in his prior positions, in part because he hasn't been able to how he would do it in absent a competitive election. You're not going to see that. So why is a competitive election a bad thing? I think is well, Jordan I running?
0: Yeah, Jordan is. Jordan is out. I mean, th- so it looked like yesterday they were trying to push Scalise out and consolidate McCarthy, and then Jordan right. announced I think this morning that. He wants, or there's rumors that yeah, Jordan I just, wants to run. There's no rumors. And, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, wow. that he wants to run, and that he's going to make life hell. Well, but, I, but I think, I, I everything James said, I think is true from kind of a neutral vacuum perspective. But I think one problem is that the party has to worry about the 2018 election. It's not two weeks after the election where we're trying to figure this out, where competition might be great. Competition right now sends a signal to voters, whether you like it or not, that this party is a mess and doesn't know what it's doing.
3: But But I I just want to take issue with that. I mean, the party has been trying to pretend like it's not a mess, right? The party has been handling conflict like I would try to handle conflict when I first got married. Like, you know, my wife would come home. I would have done something wrong. She's upset with me. I'm like, how do I get out of this conversation as quickly as (laughs) possible? (laughs) That's a terrible way to do it. And that's changed since you've been married longer. Good for you. I have gotten better, you know. Um, But no, and, and it doesn't work. Right? The bottom line is there are divisions in the party, which it should be. It's a big party in a big, diverse country. And right now you're reading about, oh, well, the, the, the majority is in danger because of 2018, because you have districts where you know the president might not be popular or they may not be that conservative. Well, then so what? Have some competition. Allow members to to voice their own positions, to show their own like identity, and then let their constituents make that decision. But I don't I don't think that it undermines the elections. If anything it helps because you'll have two people who are really wanting to demonstrate their ability to be speaker. And what are they gonna do? They're gonna be raising money. They're gonna be doing all kinds of stuff. It seems to me that competition helps electoral chances not hurts them for the party overall what competition doesn't do unless at least in primaries is it does hurt that particular person in a primary but i think the research shows that as far as primaries in general for the party it helps you in the general it doesn't hurt you
1: So here's one of the things that I've been interested in, is if there was a Freedom Caucus member who happened to get the speakership, would they run it in a manner in which they're currently advocating, which is a little bit more freedom, more open rules, a little bit more debate, uh, less structure on the the bills, uh, less, uh, for lack of a better word, tomfoolery, right, on uh, changing the bills post uh, committee. Uh, Do you think that that would play out under a, a Jim Jordan speakership?
3: I mean, that's the double edged sword for, you know, someone who is an institutionalist and a conservative, right? right? Because at the end of the day, if you do open up the process and you do allow for that kind of inclusive decision making, then you're going to get outcomes that probably aren't in line with where you are because the party isn't that conservative. That's right. I think there's two responses to that. One is that you may believe that the people in the vast majority of house districts are as conservative as you and the ultimate result will be that the members come towards you, right? So you open up the process and you allow people to go out on the record clearly. So that's one. The other one is that you, which is kind of the way at least, you know, thinking back to the Senate, like a Mansfield would have run the place or or someone else similar is that you, you create a level playing field and you just give it the best you've got. Right? And I think it's perfectly sensible and fine to expect someone to say, I've created a level playing field, these are the rules, they're fair, I'm gonna give it my best I've got, these are my arguments, I'm gonna to try to maneuver and everything else I can, but within that context, if I lose, okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way most people approach politics, but yet we have this idea of members of Congress, whether they be liberal or conservative, that if they believe something, they are just inab- unable in their with their DNA to allow for a process that would allow an outcome that they don't support to happen. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way Americans see politics, I don't think.
0: But I mean, where does that end? I mean, the, the conflict, you know, the, the point of a party in Congress is to uh, organize a group of different people under a unified goal, right? And so we can have conflict in the caucus where Jordan takes on McCarthy, and I think it's basically ridiculous to think Jordan could actually win a majority of the Republican conference. It doesn't seem possible. What he done do is he can prove to the conference that he controls enough votes to deny someone the speakership. And therefore you need to listen to him and come up with some way to mollify him by giving them seats in the leadership or giving them a, you know, a say in who the compromise candidate is. But at some point it has to end. And the traditional place it ended is they fought it out in the conference and you could say what you wanted and you could vote how you wanted. But then when that conference nominee came out, you'd all support them on the floor. Right, but the threat of the Freedom Caucus is that they're going to take the conflict over the speakership to the floor, right? And maybe that's fine, right? That's another place you can have conflict. But that really cuts against the core idea of a congressional party at that point, where you have this rump group of people who are willing to take it out of the conference and to the floor in the fight over the leadership. That would be a very modern development. We don't see that.
1: Well, yes and no. It'd be be modern and old all the same
3: time, right? But yes and no. I mean, I think it demonstrates one the Freedom Caucus's um, skill at negotiating you have to identify where your leverage is you have to figure out where the decisions are made and you have to do your use your leverage to get those decisions made in a place where you have more power right that's what you would expect leaders to do incidentally um but you know that's 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 a good thing the second thing is yeah parties exist to solve the social choice problem and so you keep issues that divide you away well the republican party's been doing that for a long time to the point where they're literally not united on anything anymore and so at a certain point you have to allow that kind of chaotic and dynamic process to play out so you can have a new kind of coalition come about a new kind of republican party that may believe a lot of different things i don't know and and then they can support their leadership, and then they can figure out how they want to run things moving forward. Um, but you know, I don't. At the end of the day, like the the Freedom Caucus using their power on the floor does not offend me. It wouldn't offend no, me. It if, I, it, I'm not suggesting it does. It you either. But from either. a party perspective, I would suggest that, like that, they do it to help shape the party. And yes, if Jordan can't get elected the likely outcome of the race, if he were to run, if he articulates a clear set of ideas, is that whoever does get elected will have to take notice of those ideas and incorporate them in how they run the House. And so in that case, competition helps to bring the party back together. And if you don't have that, then you just walk away and nobody ever even acknowledges those but, ideas.
2: But didn't that partially happen with Paul Ryan? I mean, didn't he have to give some fealty to the, the Freedom Caucus? I mean, it sounds to me, James, what you're saying oh,
3: is- I just want to say the fealty. I mean, that's literally the job. I mean, it's not, I mean, yeah. the, the leader owes the members his fealty because they're hiring him to do a job. I, I just think but, psychologically, but, you don't think of it that way. Fair enough. Um, but
2: so what sounds like to me, what you're saying is, is that the Republican party is kind of at the end of the Phoenix and the Phoenix needs to die now so they it can be reborn in the fire. I, 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 I like I, I like I, I like you're I, I like the the violence of this. <laughs> this is great. But but I think it, I think it fits, right? I mean, you think Harry Potter's the most recent example of this, right? When Fox goes and, and and finally ends, and then all of a sudden comes back again as the chick. I mean, that's what it sounds like you're talking about. The Republican Party, in a sense, needs to totally disintegrate to be able to come back up and reform itself into whatever is a working coalition to move forward. I mean, and let me tell you, the Democratic Party is going to have this problem too if they ever take power back. Mm-hmm. They have these same issues, maybe not as dramatically right now because they have no power. But once they have power, they're going to have to see these same issues. So maybe the Republican Party can get a uh, jump on it.
1: I've got I've got another question. So one of the one of the interesting things that you pre- you you presented is basically that uh, you know a Jordan type speaker would be a little more open process. Well, the the Freedom Caucus has been an, a group of individuals who have thrived on the ability to extract leverage, right? Um, using their floor majority or floor de- majority denying binding vote, whatever you want to call it. Um, but they've they've really pushed leadership into positions that are not good negotiating positions for the leaders, right? So they've denied votes on the omnibus packages, they've denied votes on the debt ceiling, they've denied vo- votes on several of these uh, large must pass packages, for example. And it's really put their, their own leaders in a poor negotiating position, right? The, their attempt to extract leverage has put John Boehner or Paul Ryan in bad spots, which is why the one reason why the omnibus is $300 billion over the next couple of years, right? Not the omnibus, the uh, debt, the, the budget package. So my question is like, given, given their track record and their sort of like legislative tactics, um, would they be more accepting of the outcome, right? Which is everybody sort of looks around and, and says like, yeah, the debt ceiling will probably get passed no matter what. Um, everybody looks at the omnibus like, yeah, a omnibus will get passed like no matter what. Would they be more accepting of the omnibus results if it had gone through, say, a committee markup in a normal, more regular sort of open process, amending process, do you think?
3: Well, I, I think this is the key point in our politics today, which is that the legislative process and the political process in general reconciles losers to the outcome right i mean it's just the way it works and if you have your shot and you lose and you think that the, it was fair it is very hard for you to maintain maybe you can do it personally but it's hard for you to maintain the support to continue to lead a credible defense or an opposition against that thing whatever right. it is because you've lost all before in like previous right. iterations. i mean that's the way the legislative process works when i was in congress my job working for members was to stop things they didn't agree with the way i did it was you would stop the process now they just stop the process at the beginning. It makes no sense to me. If you're trying to start a bill, why do you start by stopping? But. I don't think it's a fair characterization to say that the the Freedom Caucus put the members, uh, the leadership, in a bad negotiating position, because the Freedom Caucus is reacting to a a, a process and a in a position that the leaders have put themselves in intentionally. The leaders make a decision to write an omnibus behind closed doors. The leaders make a decision not to put bills on the floor. The leaders make decisions to hold things until the last minute and try to jam the members with a fait accompli, all because they know they can no longer keep these issues that divide their members off the agenda. So what do they do? They wait till the very end and then jam it through and say, I had no other choice. And that's like the, the next like least bad outcome for it. But I
0: feel like, you know, I do feel like there's a functional problem here. It's like, what is the goal of a freedom caucuser? It seems to me the goal, you know, ex ante is to get policy towards your preferences. At least it seems that goal. But by using their leverage where it ends up where Ryan ends up going and getting Democratic votes for the bills and you end up voting no in the end. How does that help you actually get policy your way? What it does to me is it shows you're trying to separate yourself for your constituents to show I'm not with the leaders and just varnish your symbolic brand of being a conservative as opposed to actually getting substantive gains. And that's fine too, but that seems like a very different goal. It doesn't seem like the Freedom Caucus is achieving a lot of policy
3: goals. So I don't, I mean, I can't, I don't want to speak for the Freedom Caucus. I don't know what they're thinking, but. Um... <laughs> James, as, as, as spokesperson <laughs> for the Freedom Caucus, how would, you, how, yeah. how would you respond to these charges? say. <laughs> Just imagine a freedom caucus in the Senate. No.
1: And I was curious, is yeah. there anything but, that's even... But I would say, I would say, we'll
3: look, the idea is you're, you're confronting members with a choice and they don't like it. And so you're saying, well, think about how much worse it could be and therefore they should support it. Well, yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense on one level. But on another level, they're saying, I don't like it. This is part of this kind of the corrupt way of doing business around here that has persisted for a while and I want to change that. And I see changing that as the first step towards me being able to then potentially get better policy outcomes in the future. And I think a lot of the way the Freedom Caucus at least has approached these issues with leadership and other things is how do we create? a a structure in this, in the house that allows us to have more influence over things that we think we ought to have influence over. And, and because right now, if you adopt that other position, you're saying that's where most members are today and leaders go to them and they say, this is what we have. And if you don't support it, it's going to get worse.
0: Right, but the Freedom Congress refuses to do things that would actually blow up the process. Right. They have the balance of power. They can just stop voting for the leadership's rules until they get what they want. Like they don't want to take like the crucial step across the Rubicon. Right? Which
3: again, I think going back to the Jim Jordan and the speakership um, and the rumored bid for speakership, I think it also speaks to uh, you know his kind of skill set for the job. People try to say the Freedom Caucus is a bunch of like knuckle dragging Neanderthals who don't know what they're doing and they're crazy. These guys are incredibly sophisticated. They are team players. They are trying to figure out when to push and when to hold back on a routine basis. And they're not using all of their tools at their disposal to blow things up. They could very easily, but they're not. And I think that speaks to their kind of more sophisticated understanding of the way the house is organized and run in a way that most members don't have.
1: I, think it's interesting. I mean, here's here's another thing, another question that I wanted to ask is, basically le- leaders are in control of this process. And we've been discussing this with, in relation to the Freedom Caucus here for a little while. Um, and one of the things that I know gets on your nerves, which is probably one of the reasons I'm bringing it up, um, is The leadership use of the process in a way that is uh, the laziest process possible, right? In other words, leaders are structuring the process in a way uh, that makes it easier to be lazy in a governing way, but allows for all the other activities in and around the legislative process to sort of uh, blossom, right, and flourish. Uh, So, you know, in the Senate, you have the UC on nominations, like requesting unanimous consent rather than going through debate in order to expedite a nominee um, through the Senate. Uh, In the House, we have a lot of different rules that we use in order to make uh, time very structured, in order to give members the maximum amount of time outside of the floor chamber, outside of debate and normal legislative functions. So for example, like stacking all floor votes at the end of the day, right? Um, You have debate on three or like two rules and three bills or four bills or whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden at the end of the day, you've got 10 votes, right? And it's just stacked up in a nice like one hour, one and a half hour block. right, members to do other things yeah. which allows members to do a day, whole lot of other stuff during the, the, the day. I mean so it's it's in many ways like an extreme a, a response by the leaders to their political environment uh, they're interested in fundraising they're interested in campaigning they're interested in constituent work they're interesting other activities right that don't involve debate right um, how do you think that this is playing out what do you do you think this is harmful I mean you describe a process that's more robust and more inclusive uh, but it seems like leaders are doing these things for a lot of different incentives um, and how it's, it's the structure of the process is, a, is affecting how members behave in a variety of different ways, just even more under the surface than what we normally think of.
3: Yeah, I think this gets to kind of how we as a, and I promise I won't go like crazy meta here, but like how we as a people see- Permission to go crazy <laughs> meta. Yes, Granted. see politics. You know, if, we, if I start talking about post-structuralism, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk about this some more. Um, but no, look, I think it's how we see politics today. And not just the members, but people, everybody. And I I, I started saying this a couple of months ago to be provocative and I only like half believed it, but I'm increasingly believing it. And I think it's that people no longer look at Congress as a place where policy is made. Hmm. They think policy is made in elections. Mm. Big things are done in elections. Now, yes, you have to then come back and actually do those big things in Congress, but the the important decisions are made in an election. And so once you have that view, you then begin to structure everything around it. So now this is like, take McConnell's argument about, well, we're not gonna have a budget or entitlement reform. Well, I mean, you got unified control of government, presumably, right? You would think that now would be the time to push. But he doesn't. Why? Because he sees big policy happening at election in November, and if he wins, then then we'll come back and do it. Well, the trick is that in January of 2019, you know, you're going to be like, well, 2020. If we don't get the president, we're never going to be. If we don't re- win the White House again, we're not going to be able to do anything. And so it's like Godot, like it never shows up. And you're in this perpetual moment where you're always waiting. Or if you go back, you know, if your Greek mythology of Tantalus, where he's like sitting there waiting for pe- perpetu, you know, forever. And he's got, what is it, like fruit above his head? I forget. I'm like really um, rusty on my Greek mythology. <laughs> you lost me in mythology, dude. But my point is, I thought we were going with the stone <laughs> up the hill. That you're, talking. you're encouraged to wait for the, It's You're always waiting. And, and you're holding and it's more of an ideological view of the world, too, because you're holding out for that perfect thing. We're going to cross the you know, horizon and it's going to be this beautiful nirvana and everything's going to be great. And it's never going to rain again. And the humidity's going to go away like all this stuff. But it's nonsense. And I think that when you see when you understand that, then the leaders start to structure the process to not intrude on that. And that's where you see things like no effort. Well, why do you not want effort? One, the members got to do other things to raise money and other, you know, see constituents. But also with effort, you have a more dynamic process. With a more dynamic process, you have less leader control. Less leader control equals more division and chaos, which undermines what happens in November. And then that's the whole thing. And if you don't win in November, you might as well go home. Right. I think that's that's the, that's an interesting point because it is
1: it has become so structured around Everything else but legislating, right? Debate has been winnowing away for decades now, right? Uh, amendments are winnowing away. Like the effort has in policymaking has been winnowing away simply because what we're trying to do is not necessarily policy make, but instead run elections, right? And everybody's sort of looking around doing all these other things and not necessarily focusing on the debate and policy work necessarily. I wonder how much members actually see their role in the policymaking process. And I always find it interesting how many members are talking like I ask reporters questions about what's going to happen on the floor later that day. And that's always that that never gets old for me.
2: And these are members of the majority,
1: right? These are members of the majority asking people of the press what's happening, right? And when they
3: try to change the situation, what what happens? What's the response? It's not good. Why? And why is? What's the rationale? Why do members get pushed back when they try to say challenge the leader? If they have, if if Ryan steps down and we have McCarthy running and somebody wants to challenge him, what's the response? It holds it's pushback. And yeah, but why? Oh, what's the rationale they're given? Is it or, a, or almost you, parental if, in nature? Or if you I want know to it's offer best. an amendment on the Senate floor, that's not how it's done. Right. Well, but not how it's done. But there's a cost to it, right? And right. that cost is what. November right, right. it uh, literally not only do you never get what it is that you ostensibly came to Washington to, to get you're 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 like denied the effort to even try because even trying to, to have a say in the process undermines your ability to win in November
2: because I as leader know best. this
3: weird yeah. circular thing, and, but it's kind of like, well, what are you doing here in the first place? If the whole reason, and this is my only issue with the kind of re-election only, you know, because it does, it doesn't hold up in the end because you're just in a circle and you're running round and round and round and it can't sustain itself forever.
0: Well, I see, that's where I think you and I disagree some is that this, the, the, the danger of it is that it's a, it's a downward vicious spiral and that if it goes on, if it sucks being here and the members hate it and they don't push back against the leaders eventually the types of people who want to be here are people who are okay with it sucking. Right? And then and so like there's but not this there's not this feedback mechanism where all of a sudden people get more and more frustrated because they just retire. And Jim DeMint hits the highway and, you know, Olympia Snow hits the highway and everyone who cares hits the highway and the people running for election are people who are satisfied
3: with a legislative process that sucks. But I will say in, in defense of the kind of re election thesis, I I would just say that um, that eventually this can't camp- hold out because it will become an electoral vulnerability, which is what's happening right now. So even there, you would, you know, then the dynamic will change and they'll expect you to do your job in the Congress in between elections. And Harry Reid in the Senate, at least, was the last Senate leader who, you know, he had a very electoral view of the world, but he also (laughs) would scrap and fight for every little bit he could get in between elections as well. Today, it's almost—it's the exact—it's only the electoral view. And if anything is done in between the elections that undermines the elect our chances in elections, as I interpret it, we can't do it. Right. And that, that, I think, is the key problem with why things are so dysfunctional. I, 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 that's an I don't interesting, s-
1: interesting point. I mean, like, because one of Big May, Mayhew's points about the re election thesis, right, the single minded seeking of re election, is that you did it, you also wanted, you know, position taking and credit claiming. And it's like we've wiped away credit claiming and just decided to take positions on stuff, right? This is where we stand, even though we don't get anything done. Um, it's been very interesting because we have been in this sort of like post policy. Re-election seeking mode for a little while now i wonder if we're going to get back to that at all
3: i would say it's post-political <laughs> but political post-political in a, in a, in a greek sense oh <laughs> sense yeah sense. all right oh, i like boy. it right. <laughs> no i mean we don't do politics in this country anymore we push decisions because the members of congress don't want to do these things because they think it hurts them in november they push decisions where to the courts into the administration that's those aren't political places <laughs> Not by the way I'm using it. Politics is about competing with your with your, your ideas peers yeah. on the basis of equality on how the community should be run, and you win in that process by persuasion and speech. In the administration, ostensibly, it's about technocratic reason, mm-hmm. and in the judiciary, it's about like the clouds parting and like you know you get like you release the birds into the air and they tell you how it works. But why, an why, <laughs> why? <laughs> there's an authority that can't be challenged. But why should right?
0: I? Why should I accept your point of view that that's new? If they spent the entire 1840s and 1850s pushing off the question of the western territories, trying to get the court to rule on the Missouri Compromise line, and they spent the entire 50s trying to slug off civil rights in the in the in the House and Senate by pushing it off, hopefully to the executive or judiciary, like I don't think that shirking of congressional desire for conflict is new. I I, I, I want to hear your idea of what, what what's unique
3: about this now. Yeah, why I mean, why like it's never one or the other, but I do think it's a little different because you know. The opponents of civil rights legislation in the, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s weren't bottling it up in committee so that the administration would act. They were bottling it up in committee because they didn't want it to pass. Right. They were wrong, but they didn't want it to pass. And they were using their their powers in the institution to not let it pass. And so in a way, that's them taking a very clear position on it, engaging in politics, saying, I disagree with this. I don't like it today. Members on any side of any issue don't do that. Schumer comes out the census question and he's like, this is terrible, this is bad, courts fix it for me. Like what is that about? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, he it's not the court's responsibility to fix this census. It's the Congress's responsibility to fix this census, right? Where Republicans go into the court and saying, "Declare this law unconstitutional." It's like we'll quit spending money on it. So, so like, what... what are you doing? So, you what can't is... appropriate money for a bill, a law that you think is unconstitutional. Because guess what? Congress has a say in interpreting the Constitution as well. But Congress doesn't do politics anymore. And when Congress doesn't do politics anymore, our system doesn't work because Congress is the only place in our system where politics is done at the national level. one of of the
2: other differences, I think, is that back then they blocked the single issue, right? They blocked civil rights, but other things went forward. Here, I think what James is also saying is, you know, Schumer got all upset about the census. So there are mechanisms in the Senate to try to block that or to change that. If you're allowed to at least have a vote on something, but there's nothing else being allowed to be done, so there's no way to
3: try to but do it. But it's not; they're not. It's not about blocking. It's about taking a clear position on an issue and using the powers that you have at your disposal to achieve your goals. And they don't do that. The members of Congress say it's beyond my capability as a member of Congress to fix the census because that is something the court should decide. Well, or that's yeah, something this executive branch should decide. And it's like, well, what does Congress do? What's the
2: last piece of legislation the Senate's put forward that you could actually try to fix something on? But
3: that's. But they're not victims. They don't. They don't have a Schumer is the second most powerful person in the Senate. And then everybody else is the third because they're all the same. If Schumer really wants to force the issue, he can force the issue. What did liberal Democrats do when Southern Democrats bottled up civil rights legislation? They changed the process. They changed the process. They're not victims in this. They're acquiescing in their own disenfranchisement because they don't do politics. Because they think politics is bad. And why do they think politics is bad? Because it can hurt them in November. That's what I mean. That's the fundamental problem in our society today. We don't do politics because elections are how you change policy. But politics isn't about elections, politics is about arguing and debating and Enforcing votes and recognizing your opponents, and then ultimately coming together and saying, I'm going to take half a loaf. Well, at least, right, right. that's right. right, it's a different right. kind of politics. But you can't take half a loaf unless you have politics in that process that precedes it. Otherwise, that half a loaf is never going yeah, to be Yeah, no, I
0: completely agree with that. See, I, I, I reject the idea that elections aren't politics. They're are a different kind of politics, and I think an inferior kind of politics. But I think if we just had elections, and then the result was either we have divided government and nothing gets done, or one party wins and they implement their program by fee, yeah, that's a different kind of politics, and it's adjudicated, and I think, in an inferior way, but it's still a kind of decision-making. But I think it's completely inferior, but it kind of resembles a parliamentary system in like a very strict sense, right, where the legislature does nothing except respond to the results of elections. It would be politics <laughs> if
1: the
3: legislature doesn't respond, right? Be, no, no, no. no, no I'm with you. Like, but that's precise to the point. It would be politics if it was like a parliamentary system. The problem is elections result. Yes, if that's politics, you get new members here, but then what do they do? They say executive branch use your technocratic reason and tell me how to fix this problem or the you know supreme court use your authority and your ocular guides to tell me how to fix this problem or not me just fix it so you're not getting after elections members who come here and actually solve problems or try to solve them you get members who continue to do the same thing that the people they threw out did which is push all the decisions that are should be political in nature to other places so make those answers did you did you program <laughs> oh, okay, did you excellent.
1: program Siri has found
3: the
2: Did you program period.
1: your phone to, to like search for stuff when you say executive branch
3: <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god
1: that is amazing Siri the She did she figured it out <laughs> no,
3: they they brought up a bunch of articles here and, and none of them are things that we have written so <laughs> <laughs> they're, they looked <laughs> <think this laughs> further you know
0: it sounds like you're making an argument that the members are for better or worse correctly or incorrectly are trying to respond to their own personal electoral incentives but that is kind of the basis of the madisonian system that they should be doing this right is representative democracy they should be responding to their electoral incentives so what is the structural feature of that that's wrong i mean it, you can make it well it's just a willpower argument they should be willing to do this but uh, i would want to hear an incentive argument if their electoral incentives are don't talk about conflict right then that is something more fundamental and constitutionally
3: problematic, right? No, I don't I don't think this is a problem with I think the bones of the system are fine. I think this is a this 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 worldview that I'm describing is not just the members, it's literally everybody. Mm. This is like, you know, the guy on the corner selling hot dogs or the person giving you investment advice or, you know, your dentist. You know, this is this is not just, you know, Paul Ryan and right. and Nancy Pelosi. And I think that's the reason. We have a different conception of politics in our society today than we did when the system that we have was written and created, and then when it developed over the years.
0: So then, but at that point, I worry that this becomes a blame the voters problem. Because if the voters are
3: the impediment, you're really up a creek, right? No, I don't think it's a, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just, I think the first step in trying to figure out how do you solve problems is to accurately identify them. Mm-hmm. You know, take it, another great example is people oftentimes will talk about localism or they'll talk about federalism. I'm a big proponent of federalism. I'm a big proponent of subsidiarity and pushing issues down. But the reason why most people say they should do that is because that's where it's going to be a lot more calm and reasoned and easier to solve problems down there. Well, that's nonsense. The last time I checked, local politics the is really, really intense. School boards, man. School boards. I had it, the man.
1: most amazing time listening to a guy about a homeowners association problem at the <laughs> oh my airport. God. And his dog, it was the best thing I'd heard all week. And I went to Midwest that week. <laughs>
3: so it was amazing. Can you imagine Sorry. The, God. the Freedom oh, Caucus and a like, Homeowners Association. <laughs> but that is, like, every, every homeowners <laughs> no. association
0: is like collections of Freedom yeah. Caucuses, right? I mean, that is the thing is that... You know, I, people always ask me, like, would you be interested in electoral politics? I say no. And I said the place I would be interested in is the school board. And I usually say it because I feel like the uh, what-you-can-accomplish-to-bullshit-ratio uh, is the best down there. Are you but making it, an announcement? But, <laughs> he's running. <laughs> but it, 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 is, it is also extremely nasty. And people seem to have that psychologically inverse, where they think Congress is nasty. N- nasty
2: strong. How about personal? I mean, I think that's part of what it's gotten to now, too. Is it's and these very are all personal. negative.
3: But think about it. How are we talking about right, it? They're ne- right. we're using negative words to describe, of course, it should be passionate and heated. Right. If you're talking about how you're educating your children, well, who wouldn't want it to be passionate and right. heated? But like that, we talk about this like it's a bad thing. And that's what I'm talking about. That's Fair the point. problem. And if somebody gets heated and passionate, you're like, well, you need to calm down. Right. Why are you? That's just ridiculous. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know?
1: Evidently, they have not watched the prime minister's questions. Right, uh, I I'd love that. I mean, I would I would like to see a little bit more combativeness, and particularly in congressional debate. Like, holy cow! Like, is some dry stuff. Well, you have I to oh,
2: you have to have opportunity.
1: Well, there's right? plenty of opportunity. You can go no, down there and sure rail not. against all sorts of things that are on the floor, right?
2: But, but not, but but in on the House, you're very circumspect in your time commitments to be able to do that. In the Senate, where we used to have open a debate, we don't have open debate anymore. There is not a bill that's laid on the floor where. Non-germain amendments can be offered anymore. I mean, the, the leaders are filling the tree. You don't have that ability, actually, I don't think, that you're talking about. Maybe. I'm holding a copy
0: of James's new book, Unparliamentary uh, War, Partisan Conflict wow. and Procedural Change <laughs> in the United States Senate. A fabulous read. James is a very good writer, very engaging, and very knowledgeable. Um, uh, no, keep it so the, the question to James is, uh, on these particular Senate issues of filling the tree and, and, and like that. Uh, where do you see this going and what's your answer to this?
3: My answer to filling the tree is the same as everything else. We just need more conflict. We need How more, do you create it? You, the members just need to want to do the things that they say they want to do. All right. So you're the next senator from Washington, D.C. What do you do? you just go to the floor, and you all, first of all, am I a shadow senator? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's, you're legit. This is, this
0: is post-D.C. statehood. You've been elected first senator on a platform of conflict in Congress.
3: Have, oh, I, yeah. have I condoned a position on voting rights? <laughs> I, incidentally, I, I'm not averse to the, the statehood question as long as the people of D.C., want it and then the country does it in a way that is laid out in the constitution i'm not one of these that says they can never be a state that's for the country and, and dc to decide agree but you can't do it through some weird you know those old things they were doing a couple of congresses ago that was just funky yeah they're giving people totally seats but anyway somebody's remote their dissertation on this so <laughs> <laughs> well that's a different episode yeah go ahead yeah. Yeah. Um, but no what i would say is yeah, you just go to the floor and you offer an amendment why can't you offer an amendment
2: even with a tree being
3: filled why not? You know, they they fill the tree. Well, so what? What is the amendment tree? It's just the thing that tells you how many amendments you can offer. You know how many you could at the beginning of Congress, the beginning of time back in 1789? Two. That's how many amendments could be pending at the same time. Now it's like a lot. I don't know how many off the top of my head. It's in the book. Um, and the reason why we have more now is because the members decided to facilitate the orderly consideration of their amendments on the floor. That's what they wanted to do. And then something happened around the time of Frist, and he was probably the first to start using this, Bill Frist, the majority leader at the time, um, to start using the amendment tree to block amendments, not to facilitate their consideration. And so. Because amendments are done via precedent, which is different than the rules, it's like a judge making a decision in a case where the rules are vague, right, they're easier to change. And I would argue, and I think that people like John Roberts and and Blackstone and others have argued, that when precedents no longer serve the purpose for which they were created, you have a duty and an obligation to overturn them. And I think that that holds on the floor of the Senate just as well as it does in the Supreme Court or in the in the great British Empire of Blackstone's Day. And and so at the end of the day, if you want to offer an amendment, go to the floor, offer your amendment. If the chair says you can't offer it, appeal the ruling of the chair. You're a senator. There's a vote. It's 50 more. A simple majority. It's not 51. A simple majority. If you win that vote, your amendment's pending. If you don't, it's not. It seems pretty simple to me. The majority leader is not some kind of you know Olympian god who can you know possesses these otherworldly powers that can somehow stop you from doing what you want. He's just a majority leader, so just offer the amendment. Let your First Amendment be: if you keep filling the tree, I'm going to take away your office. Like you just
2: like you can do some <laughs> if anyone stuff. votes for that, now. <laughs> yeah, or a majority, simple majority, for that.
0: And so, what prevents? I mean, what prevents a cross-partisan coalition of backbenchers from doing this? It seems like it's in the interest of for sure the minority party to break the tree filling, or at least currently, the current minority party, um, and it's certainly in the interest of the backbenchers in the majority to break the tree filling. What stops that cross-partisan coalition from forming? November.
3: This is what I mean. It goes back to November, because why would you bother offering an amendment? Because that's not where we're going to do anything, and it can't. it's not going to pass anyway, and it's going to upset this delegate. All these other reasons fill in the blank. Then if you keep doing this or you work with the other side to do it, then that's going to undermine our ability to win or hold the majority in November. And if we do that, then, you know, the Republic's going to fall into the ocean. That's I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This is pretty much the argument that they're given. And so when members try to change the status quo, it all goes back to November. And that's what I mean by saying that we no longer see politics is about making decisions in between elections, but only at elections. So, I mean, Sir? I don't know what to do to add to that. Other than, I,
1: this is one of those is one of those interesting, interesting things. We had, I mean, the the whole reason that this process started, where we start like wrapping up conflict and, and containing conflict, was to prevent things in order to solve November, right? Uh, Fris started filling the amendment tree in order to reduce conflict, in order to, for, in order for November. Uh, is politics at a place now, or congressional politics at a place now, where simply uh, the same forces that started this process can no longer maintain it,
3: or so I would take issue with no longer, and I think it's always good as, as a human being to understand that we have limited ability to do things. And politics is not, you know, we have this notion of politics, being that we're going to set this process in motion and we're going to make it work. And there's going to be an endpoint. Even if we never get there, we identify it and we are in control. That's not what politics is about. Politics is an uncertain, never ending, ceaseless fight. That's what politics is. You're constantly going back and forth, and it never stops. And you cannot control it as one person or one party. Once you do something, you no longer have control over how the other side reacts. You may all you can do is try to aim and bend things to go in your direction, over time, and 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 react to your environment in a better way. And so I think it was it, it, it betrays the hubris of man. On both the democratic and republican side when they think that they're going to take a nation like america with all the diversity and all of the the geographic expansiveness and the economic interest and everything else and we're going to in, in some conference room somewhere like figure out how to manage it on a perpetual basis and we're going to be able to succeed well that is nonsense not only does it not happen here it doesn't happen anywhere because that's not the nature of politics that is the nature of an authoritarian type regime right and i'm not trying to be a I promised I wouldn't say tyranny, but I'll just, one time. <laughs> That's a different thing. Politics is about persuasion and speech. It's about debate and argument. When you think of it in those terms, the idea of control goes out the window rapidly. When you think of it in terms of imposing technocratic reason on a, on a process to get a certain outcome that you manufacture, then you have the idea that filling the amendment tree can keep the majority. And so it goes, I mean, we, just, we need to rethink how we think about politics today because it's not doing us any favors right now.
1: I couldn't agree more. Uh, I guess uh, we'll wrap it up. Anything else we want yeah, to conclude it, with?
0: This has been the the fastest fifty minutes of <laughs> podcast history. James, you are a force of nature on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. This is amazing, <laughs> and uh, we would love to have you back for another hour or seven. But uh, we will wrap it up here.
2: We'll have to have a we we'll have to have listeners' questions. Yes, to we will, in. because this They're- is going
0: to generate a lot of listener questions. Thanks for listening. This has been Congress. Uh, two years in, and we will see you next time.